All right, well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts as I grab my Bible here. Acts chapter 2 is uh, where we are as we have been working our way through Acts. We've finished chapter 1. We started last week in, in chapter 2, and I, I simply want to remind you afresh of the, the theme of the book of Acts, not that you need reminding because this, uh, um, this slide is up here for us all the time, be my witnesses. That is what we see in Acts. We see the apostles being witnesses uh, to Jesus in all they, they saw and they witnessed. They, they saw him and they simply told others of what they saw and heard. And that's what we are to do as well. It's a great application of the book. It is to speak with others, speak to others about Jesus. Now, one of the themes I just want to mention here, you'll see over and over again, that, that comes up in the book of Acts is how the apostles they spoke were always sensitive to the people to whom they were speaking, right? In, in other words, right, if, if different people came from different backgrounds or understood different things, they, they were sensitive to those things. Uh, uh, to the Jews, right, they, they referenced the Scripture a lot because the Jews held the Scripture in high regard. We're going to see that today. Peter's preaching to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, and he quotes from three Scriptures, from Joel chapter 2 and from Psalm 16 and from Psalm 110. Uh, but the Gentiles, who know nothing of the Scripture, they don't, they don't put forth the Scripture as authoritative. Uh, they refer to creation oftentimes. They refer to the goodness of God in, in providing everything for you. Um, they, they preach differently in different locations where the local knowledge is different. When Peter preached at Pentecost, which we'll even see today, to the Jews who witnessed the life and death of Jesus, he referred to what they saw and heard, what they experienced. But when, when Paul went hundreds of miles away to sit in Antioch in the synagogue there, he, he spoke about Jesus sort of like they, they'd perhaps heard about Jesus a little bit and so referenced some things, but didn't say, you know this, because so far away they probably didn't get to Jerusalem very often, if at all. And then when Paul is in Rome, far, far away, you see Jews there who don't know anything about Jesus. And so Paul like starts from scratch, and he speaks to them in Acts chapter 28. But they always trying to seek some kind of common ground, and then going forth with that common ground. And as we work through Acts, just something, something to keep in mind. There's, there's no one way that is correct to preach the gospel is what the implication of that is. Now, I know that lots of people have their evangelistic methods and they, they come up with their booklets or they come up with their four points and they say, this is what you, what you do, almost as if it's, if it's regimented. I would just encourage you, don't be regimented, but just let the word of God saturate you. Ask people questions, understand their background, find out what their story is, see what they know, see where they are, and then just build upon that as you bear witness about Jesus and who he is. So, for instance, if you're talking to someone from a legalistic home, right, where everything was about keeping religious rules, right, speak to them about grace that's in Jesus, about how you don't need to keep up all your religious performances, but it's a heart relationship with God. And if you speak to someone who grew up in a home where God was never mentioned and dad was always drunk, then speak to them about the, the forgiving grace that God offers to those who believe and trust. I mean, think about Jesus. He spoke differently to Nicodemus than he did to the woman at the well. Nicodemus was, was this uh, Pharisee who knew it all. And uh, so Jesus plunged deep into the Scriptures with him because he knew the Scriptures really well. But the woman at the well, who was a sinful woman, and she knew it, she needed forgiveness, he just gave grace. And so I just, I just say that. She mixed with people seeking to be a witness for Jesus, understand their stories, understand their backgrounds, 
and then just go from there. I heard one pastor preaching through Acts. One of the things he likes to do is he, he just talks to people and says, uh, what's your story? What's your story? And then, uh, then ask the follow-up question, well, how's it working out for you? And then those questions fuel enough for him to progress and go on. And that's really what, what Peter's doing this morning as uh, he just speaks about Jesus. My message is entitled Preaching Jesus because that's what he did. He just spoke about Jesus. Now, if you remember last week, uh, we saw the, the crowds of people gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and the disciples were in this room together, and the, the Holy Spirit came upon them like a mighty rushing wind, and these tongues of fire upon them. They're speaking other languages, and the people who saw that heard these languages from these Galileans as they, they witnessed it. They were bewildered, and yet they were astonished and amazed and perplexed as they heard the, the people speaking the mighty deeds of God. And yet some were doubting and mocking, saying they were drunk, as verse 13 says. And, and Peter then stood up and explained the situation. Verse 15, Acts chapter 2. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he went through Joel chapter 2 and explained how the Old Testament had prophesied at the time when the Holy Spirit would come and and sons and daughters and slaves and free would would be speaking out and prophesying for the Lord. And then coming down to verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's the great promise of the gospel. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You don't don't need to to work to be saved. You don't need to be good enough to be saved. You don't have to follow some religious code or prove your zeal. As the hymn says, just as I am without one plea. Just, Just come. Come and call upon the Lord. Just confess your sin. Acknowledge you need mercy and plead forgiveness and plead His grace and ask for strength. And Joel says in verse 21, you shall be saved. Well, that was last week. And now this week we come, beginning of verse 22, when Peter then turns his attention away from the situation at hand with the, the tongues, and now he then beelines right to Jesus. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon. He said whenever he preached, well, he does, he does this. He just makes, looks at the text, reads the text, and makes a beeline for the cross, makes a beeline for Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter did here. He dealt with the situation at hand, and then he goes right to Jesus it's all that Peter does. He talks about Peter, his, the, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and the exaltation of Jesus. And so all these things really, really are there. And so as I read through this text, just listen for them. The life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. They are, they are all there preaching Jesus. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 22. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of all us men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here it is, Psalm 16, which Gary read for us today. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. 
And then he hones in on verse 27. In verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then comes the punch. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. These verses are, are all about Jesus. Let's look again. He, he begins talking about his life. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter begins by identifying Jesus and who he was. Jesus was a common name throughout those days. He says, who is this Jesus? This is the Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth wasn't such a nice place. Okay? It was, it was um, sort of seen as a, as, a, as a despised place. It was about 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, if you just go to the edge of the sea, and another maybe maybe 10 miles up to the north of the Sea of Galilee, maybe a few miles uh, up there. But it was close to the Sea of Galilee, so it was in the northern part of Israel. But it was despised, you know. And maybe in some regards, Rockford might, might be like that a little bit. Just the, the unemployment's really high, really. It's not just a great city to be in. Um, it's so much so that Nathaniel says, right, when he heard that, about Messiah coming from Nazareth. Remember what he said? What did he say? He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can any, like Nazareth, like what, what's that about? But that was where Jesus was. And Jesus transformed Nazareth like we could do with Rockford and, and surrounding regions. Jesus came from Nazareth, the perfect man who lived and loved perfectly. But it's interesting that when Peter's describing the humanity of Jesus, the life of Jesus, he doesn't focus on his moral excellencies. We often do. And rightly so, that Jesus was the perfect man, the, the gospel song, holy love, holy God in love became a perfect man to bear my blame. We always often think about Jesus, perfect man who walked and never sinned. And that, that's totally true. But Peter here told the crowds, focusing upon his mighty power, he says, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. These are the miracles that Jesus did, works and wonders and signs, just different names of, of miracles, right? Do, do you remember the miracles that Jesus did? How he turned water into wine? How he healed the invalid who'd been lame for 38 years? Do you, do you remember that? Uh, do you remember the feeding of the 5,000 with only a, a few loaves of bread and a few fish? Do you remember how he walked on water and raised Lazarus from the dead? Do you, do you remember that? These are just some of his miracles, some of his works and wonders and signs. But, but do you remember how he cleansed the leper? And he cast out the fever? And he gave sight to the blind and opened the mouth to the dumb? And he gave speech to the... Um, and he raised the children from the dead? Do you remember that? Remember how he calmed the storm? Remember how he cast out the demons? Remember how he was just there at the house and everyone who came to him was healed? He turned none away. These are just a few of the mighty works... 
wonders and signs that God did through Jesus. There were more in the gospel accounts. And certainly there were others that not, weren't even recorded. And, and we can look back and we, we maybe can remember those because we've read about them. But how different that is from the people to whom Peter's preaching that they experienced them. They witnessed them. They saw them. And that's Peter's point in verse 22, is, as you yourselves know, right? These are the works and wonders and signs he did in your midst. He walked, and you guys knew this. And this is, this is where, where Peter was sensitive, because he saw these people, many of them in Jerusalem, many of them from Jerusalem, and certainly it was a feast, so many from, from all over Judea. But even if they're coming from Galilee area, Jesus did a lot of miracles up in Galilee. He did them all around Israel. And so he said, he was in your midst and you saw these miracles and you know them. And there again, just he's being sensitive to, to what, what they knew. About how they knew that Jesus healed their friends. About how he knew how Jesus healed their sons and daughters. And at this point, there's no arguing. It's not as if one, anyone could stand up and say, not so, Peter. He didn't do those things. No, they knew that he did those things. It was obvious. But he didn't have to spend much time here because it's only one verse is, is, is all he spent. But just a reminder of who Jesus was. This powerful man. Because he was the God man. Second, we see his life and now we see his death. Verse 23. And again, he spends just one verse on this. Didn't talk a lot, but this Jesus, the same one, Jesus of Nazareth, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This one you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I, and I love this verse because it shows that the death of Jesus did not take God by surprise. This was God's plan, is that Jesus would come, be hated and despised, rejected, and crucified and killed. In fact, Isaiah 53 is a great passage. You can think about it. Some 700 years before the death of Jesus, Isaiah 53 speaks about how Jesus was despised and rejected, oppressed and afflicted. It says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Isaiah 53, verse 8, speaks about his grave being made with the wicked. And it speaks about how he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, like Joseph of Arimathea. Here was, right, his, his sinless net, his life. No, no violence, no deceit in his mouth. Well, well, while being cursed, he was silent as a lamb that goes to slaughter. That's how his death was prophesied. Perfectly the death of Jesus. And, and Isaiah tells us how he was put to death. But it tells us even why he was put to death. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. So, so he says that, that he bore our sin, it's for our transgressions that he was crushed. He died in our place for our sins. He died that we might live, and in his wounds upon the, the cross, his wounds heal our wounds. Because we've all messed up. We've all sinned. We've gone our, our own way. As Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This didn't catch God by surprise. It, it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Now, this, is, this was the definite plan. It, it's not merely the foreknowledge that God knew all this would happen. It, it, it's not as if he put the ball in motion and, and said, okay, well, this is going to happen. No, this was God's definite plan. He had his fingers in everything happening from his birth in Bethlehem, according to prophecy, to his death on the cross as a criminal. It was all according to prophecy. In fact, listen to Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. So all these, all these statements about being despised and rejected and then pierced for our transgressions, it was God's will that that would take place. And Peter knew that it was God's redemption plan. Peter knew that it was God's will to put Jesus to grief. The early church knew this. After Peter was released from prison and they prayed to the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all things in it, spoke from Psalm chapter 2 in which we got the nations raging and it says that God sits up in the heavens and he laughs. He's like, what what, what do you think you could do? You can't resist my plan. And then they said, truly in this city, Acts 4.27, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the Gentiles to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The death of Jesus was no accident. It's not some political coup that uh, went bad. It was according to God's sovereign, predestinating hand of God. That's clearly what verse 23 is saying. He's saying Jesus was delivered up according to God's definite plan. But that doesn't resolve people of the responsibility. Oftentimes people can think, well, if, if God has planned it and he's predestined it, well, then I'm not responsible. Not so. Look what Peter says. He says, you crucified and killed this man through the hands of lawless men. Now, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the crowd at Jerusalem, the same crowd that seven weeks earlier had gathered for Passover, for that seven-week feast, and then for that seven-day feast. And here's the day of Pentecost, only a feast of one day. If you made it for Passover, if you made it for Pentecost, you'd probably have made it there for Passover as well, because that was a a week-long feast. This is only a one-day feast. But a lot of people were there. And in fact, he says, he, he assumes that those people were there. You were there in the crowd. In fact, these are the same ones who gathered in front of Pilate and shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate comes forth and says, what evil has he done? They just kept saying, crucify him, crucify him. We'll take Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the one charged with murder. We'll take him, but you crucified Jesus. The good man. In fact, that very thought would haunt them later The punch of this sermon comes in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You crucified the Lord and Christ. He's the one who's up and high and exalted, and you crucified that one. And of course, then they were cut to the heart. They said, what shall we do? They acknowledged their sin. Peter says, repent. They knew they stood guilty and condemned They knew they must respond in some way. And the message of response is just repent. Now, lest lest you think, okay, well, they put Jesus to death, but I didn't put Jesus to death. They're guilty, but not me. Know this. You're guilty, too, of putting Jesus to death. Anyone who has sinned is guilty of crucifying Jesus. Particularly even if you're trusting in Jesus... That means it was your sin that was nailed to the cross, as Colossians 2 says. If your sin is to the cross, you're guilty in putting him there to take away your sin. If your sin wasn't there, then 
you're not quite, you're not guilty. But your sin is there, and you're guilty as well, even this day and age. I love the way Stuart Townend says it well, how deep the Father's love for us, right? Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. My sin on the shoulders of Jesus. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. And in other words, right, even though we live today, there's a, there's a sense in which we were right among and with them. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. My sin was on the cross. It was there until my redemption was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And see, it's our sin that placed Jesus on the cross and His love for us kept Him there. And, and you ought to feel the weight of your sin that crucified Jesus. That's what the death of Jesus teaches us. But again, Peter didn't spend much time speaking about the death of Jesus. Just one verse, though rich as it, as it is. Because everyone there, they, they saw the death of Jesus. I mean, they were in Jerusalem during the Passover. And when you walk into the city, he was, he was crucified outside the camp, according to Hebrews chapter 13. And that's why every time they'd walk into the city every day for their feast and the, the worship at the temple, they would see the, the crucified people and they would see Jesus. There was no doubting. No one could say, no, no, he wasn't crucified. He wasn't killed. Couldn't say that. They couldn't say, no, no, I didn't say crucify him. Uh, I, I wasn't part of that crowd. No, they were part of the crowd. But what they didn't know so much about was the, the resurrection. I mean, think about it. The, these people were there during the Passover. Jesus crucified on Friday at the end of the feast. And then he's put in the tomb as the feast is, is winding down. And, and they're heading back home on Sunday morning, probably, the day after the Sabbath when they're leaving. And when they're leaving town to go back to their homes or their villages or, or wherever they were as they're being dispersed, what's happening in Jerusalem behind them? Jesus is being raised from the dead. And then even when Jesus made his post-resurrection appearances, he didn't appear to everyone in Jerusalem. So even if you lived in Jerusalem, you may have just heard about the resurrection, but maybe not seen it. Because even in chapter 10, when Peter's speaking to Cornelius, he says that God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen beforehand by God to be his witnesses who ate and drank with him after the resurrection. In other words, right, it's, 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 it's the 12 to whom he spent 40 days with. And, and Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that there were at least 500 people that Jesus appeared to. But when he appeared to people, he didn't appear to the crowds post-resurrection. He appeared to the believing people. Maybe up to 500 at least up to 500, but we don't know if there are many more than that. But here Peter's preaching to a crowd of 3,000 who then believed. But I suspect that people heard rumors. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't see the resurrection of Jesus, hear about the resurrection of Jesus without causing a stir. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus feigned um, ignorance. They said, what? Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? The tomb is empty. Right? And this, this scuttlebutt kind of all around trying to figure out what happened about the, the resurrection. Like, like, where is he? What's happened? And so I think that's why the third point this morning is we look at the resurrection. We, we have so many verses on the resurrection because they didn't know very much about the resurrection. And so he's bringing it forth. I think they were confused a little bit. They had heard about it maybe. But, but Peter is trying to set forth before them just what happened in the resurrection. And Peter had been thinking long and hard about this. 
Because he shows how it's proved in the, the Old Testament. But in verse 24, we see the resurrection there, right? Quite plainly. He says, God raised him up. He says the same thing in verse 32. God raised up Jesus. And everything between verse 24 and 32, I think it's nine verses there between them, speaks about God raising Jesus up from the dead. And the way he describes it is this, in verse 24. This is great. He said, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. In other words, Peter envisions the death of Jesus almost as if Jesus is in like this straitjacket. You ever seen a magician put on this straitjacket where he's bound and he's buckled and things like that? He's just kind of tied together and he, is he going to escape? Can he escape? And it, it takes a magician to escape from that. But most people are like, well, you're bound in a straitjacket. You can't, you can't do anything. You're, you're just stuck and you're bound together. And there, there he is, like the pangs of death were around Jesus. And what God did is he just unshackled the buckles and the straps to Jesus so that Jesus was released from the straitjacket and he lived, loosing the pangs of death. And that's really the, the reality of the, the resurrection. Is Jesus then went free and death no longer has dominion over him. The straitjacket that kept him in the tomb could not keep him very long. In fact, Peter said this in verse 24, it was not possible for him to be held by these by these bounds these pangs of death it was not possible there's no way that jesus could have stayed in the tomb see why was peter so confident catch this because the scriptures said so look at the first word of verse 25 it says this it says for that means because so think about the reality of this because david spoke in the scripture about the resurrection of jesus it was impossible for him to stay in the tomb. That's incredible trust in the Scriptures, the confidence in the Scriptures. They spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. The resurrection of the Messiah had to come to pass. It's the same reason they replaced Judas with Matthias. Acts chapter 1 and verse 16. The Scripture had to be fulfilled. And Psalm 16 had to be fulfilled. There's no way he's going to stay in the grave. And so he quotes... In verse 25 through 28, just catch again. It's a psalm of, of trust and rejoicing in, in the Lord. Here he is. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. There's David looking at the Lord, realizing that he is right there with him. He's not going to be shaken, but as it says in verse 26, his heart was glad, his tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. There's this hope, there's this joy. That David is having because God is, is with him at all the time. In fact, he shows how much God is with him. He says in verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, right when I die, you're not going to abandon me. And then it speaks of the blessings of knowing God. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Here's David glad in God, rejoicing in all that God means for him. It's interesting here that there's a way that David speaks that transcends himself, which is often whenever you see a psalm and it says David, think and realize that David could be speaking bigger than himself because he, he does that often in his psalms. As he, he speaks about his own experience, but there, there, there could be this way in which he speaks about others even in a greater way. Because what we see here is David, the king, was dead. And his bones were there. 
and he was rotting away. And, and that's, that's, he's, he's focusing here. That's what he says in verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So, so Peter's saying this, you know David, the king? Have you been to his tomb before? Uh, I, I know I have. On many occasions, and when, it, when I've gone there, I've, I've often read Psalm 23 and reflected upon God and His goodness to us, that he is, he is our shepherd. And I've read many of David's Psalms as I've gone there, reflected it back upon his life and, and giving thanks to God for, for David and his leadership. That He was a man after God's own heart, not only in his love for God in these worship songs he did, but even giving insight into the soul of man that... that fell and yet still was restored to God and how, how he, he helps us walk through what it is to be a heart of God. I've seen David. I've seen David's heart through his Psalms. I've been in his tomb. But here's what I've realized, that David is still in the tomb and his bones have decayed. His flesh has experienced corruption. Yet Psalm 16 promises that would not take place for the Holy One. Look at verse 27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. Okay, good enough. Or let your Holy One see corruption. But you know what? David saw corruption. So when he speaks here about the Holy One, maybe David was speaking about the, the Holy Messiah. In fact, even we will see the, the whole aspect in chapter 3 uh, when David's preaching to the crowds again. This whole aspect of David being, of, of Messiah being the Holy One. You crucified and killed the Holy and Righteous One. Is who David is, so maybe that who Jesus is. So maybe this Holy One is, is viewed as a, as a Messiah. And, and is he speaking? He's speaking bigger than just Jesus. You've got your Holy One who's, who didn't see corruption. And, and, in, and in fact, that's who Messiah is, that he was raised from the dead, he didn't see corruption. And that, that's the whole idea. He calls him a prophet. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, we think of David as a king. Well, he was the king, but as he wrote this psalm, he was a prophet also, prophesying of something in the future. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, and, and that, of course, Second Samuel 7, just speaks about this Davidic promise, the, the promise of God that one of his descendants would be upon his throne forever. We kind of pull in a lot of texts there. But anyway, right, he know that God had sworn... Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Holy One, that the Holy One was not abandoned to Hades, nor does flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. So they're saying that this Holy One, Psalm 16, speaks about how he's not going to experience corruption. David experienced corruption. This one wasn't. He must be raised from the dead, and Jesus and David was prophesying of that. And then he said in verse 32, and of that, we all are witnesses. Not only did Scripture foretell the resurrection of the Christ, but we experienced it. We saw Jesus raised from the dead. I mean, this is just like Joel chapter 2. Joel prophesied of the coming of the tongues, and tongues came. We saw it. We experienced it. We read about it, and now we experienced it. And with Psalm 16, he says the same thing. He says, Messiah won't be kept in the tomb. Messiah will be raised up. We read it in Psalm 16, and we have experienced it because we are all witnesses about jesus raised from the dead and so i think really the exhortation here is to believe it he was witness to it and believe it and now we come to the exaltation of jesus that is his ascension 
and exaltation. Both these things are, are included in here. Verse 33, <clears throat> being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he says here, here's Jesus. He is now exalted at the right hand of God. Because we saw him ascended in chapter 1. And the ascension then implies, assumes, knows that he's going to be seated at the right hand of God. And once he's seated there, then he receives the Holy Spirit. And just like he promised in John 14 and John 16, he's going to give the Holy Spirit. And he gave the Holy Spirit just as, verse 33, you all are seeing and hearing that in Joel 2. I'm telling you about the resurrection that I saw, so come along. You experienced that, come and experience this as well as what he was saying. You, you're seeing this promise of the tongues poured out. You're seeing it and hearing it. And he says then in verse 34, again, similar argument, that Psalm 16 spoke of something greater than David. And here Psalm 110 speaks something that's not of David's. Because David is talking about how the Lord is saying to my Lord. Right? The, the Yahweh God is saying to his anointed one. There's this inner Trinitarian talk with, with each other. And the Lord said to my Lord, God the Father is saying to God the Son, sit at my right hand and you just wait till I make your enemies a footstool. And Peter says that Jesus is there waiting upon his throne, his place of authority. And from that place, he poured out the Holy Spirit upon the disciples in power. It's what everyone in Jerusalem witnessed that day. They saw the Spirit poured out. But the Spirit didn't come from nowhere, right? It came from Jesus, that place of authority, as he just waits to someday come to rule and reign on the earth. That's where Jesus is. And so you, you think about the, the, the preaching Jesus, and you just think about, okay, well, he lived, he died, he was buried, right? He rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And then comes the application to the life of Jesus. He says this, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The primary application here is one of knowledge. Know for certain that this has happened. And so really that that was for them, just as certain as you knew Jesus lived and just as certain as you know that he died, know full well that he was raised and he was put right up there, that he was made both Lord and Christ. Jesus was. Are, are you sure of that? Can, can you think through the life of Jesus and are you certain that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, and that Jesus is exalted? And then the conviction came to these people, this Jesus whom you crucified. You did it. You crucified him. And at that point, then, we, we will look at this next week because I just want to dig into repentance here and everything that happened and the revival that took, took place. But when they heard it, they were cut to the heart because they realized that they crucified their Messiah. And so that's when they said in verse 37, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Let each of you be baptized for the forgiveness of your, your sins. And, and that day then, we see in verse 41 that, that 3,000 believed. 
3,000 were baptized, 3,000 souls were added even then to the church. Because they believed and they embraced. Repenting of the sorrow of what they did. And so I just encourage you to think of life and death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. What, what's your response? Are you, your response, does it break you every time? Like Stuart Townend said, it was my sin that held him there. Are you convicted of that? This, this isn't a message, though, of doom and gloom, but there, there, we do need to see on the cross right, that, that there is a, a way in which he died upon the cross. We need to think about, boy, that's our sin on the cross. But yet, it is the path to our salvation, and in that we can hope, as there were added that day, it says in verse 41, 3,000 souls, 3,000 people that day came to Christ. They believed and trusted in him. I just hope that's where all of us are. Maybe you kids haven't come to that point yet. We've repented, trusting in Jesus. would encourage you to do so. Let's pray as we close this morning. Father, I do pray, God, for all of us that we would think through this simple message of a life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation of Jesus. May it form any outline of how we witness to others about Jesus. People... Perhaps don't even know. I remember speaking to uh, to a college rep at uh, the college I went to, and uh, never knew of the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't know about Jesus, and so just had a chance even to speak with her on the phone, just about Jesus and being this famous preacher and this man, this Jew, the Messiah, who walked in Israel two thousand years ago and became the Messiah. And yet, people today don't even know. And so may we discern that and tell people about the life of Jesus. Or people misconstrue the death of Jesus. Just not understanding why Jesus would die. I pray we would be winsome to that and understanding and speak to others about the death of Jesus in in a right way. And maybe people don't understand about the resurrection, that he was really dead, he really lived. Or people think the resurrection was just in the hearts of the disciples. It wasn't real. I pray that We'd have opportunities to speak with others about the resurrection of Jesus. He really lived. And that, that also he's Lord. That he's ascended and exalted. That he sits as Lord and Christ above all things now. And that, that people might just think of Jesus as someone who's just going to save everybody because that's what he does. He's the Savior of mankind, everybody. No. He's the Savior of those who submit to the Lordship of Christ. To help us in these ways to filter through. Give us opportunities, O oh God, to be your witnesses as we think about living our acts in our time and day. And I just pray, even during these days of coronavirus, I've found how much more difficult it is, O oh Lord, to witness to people because we don't talk at stores anymore. And uh, some of our social outlets have been curtailed and shut down uh, where we mix with people who need to hear about Jesus. And, and yet, God, I, I pray that you'd break through and even give us opportunities, even with masks, even with this isolation, Uh, to have opportunities to speak of your wondrous grace that's in Jesus Christ. So help us, O Lord, we pray. Strengthen us, empower us. God, save people, even today, uh, by your grace of people who would hear and just say, I need to believe and trust in Christ. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.